You'd think everything wood can be used for has been thought of, but wood, considered a renewable resource, has a lot of life left. The Agriculture Department is running a competitive grant program to come up with new ways to manage, promote, and use wood. Here with details, the Forest Service's Assistant Director for Wood Innovations, Brian Brashaw. Mr. Brashaw, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you. And you are speaking to us from the forested areas of the middle of the country, too, aren't you? I am. I'm based out of Duluth, Minnesota, but I work for our Washington, D.C. national office. All right. So tell us about this grant program. First of all, what are you specifically trying to do here for, I guess, wood that is grown for the purpose of being harvested? Yeah, we know that having markets for wood products really helps landowners manage their forests. Uh, having financial impact and, and financial connections really supports that forest management in its federal lands, state lands, tribal lands, and private lands. So our grant programs are really geared to support the development of markets for wood products and for renewable wood energy. And outside of home construction, which I guess uses a lot of pine, isn't that what two-by-fours and stuff are made from, and plywood, and then I guess oak is the other big one. What are, what are the major woods that are used for various products in the country? You know, we have a really robust hardwood lumber industry in the country that really supports industrial applications, things like railroad ties and pallets and crating, and then furniture and flooring and, you know, all the things that, that decorate our homes. The softwood industry is really across the country, the U.S. South, the Pacific Northwest, and then the Northeast and, and, and Lake States. Most of that lumber goes into construction applications for residential building products and a new emerging building material called cross-laminated timber that can be used for taller buildings. And then the third really part of the wood product sector is engineered panel products. So those are things like oriented strand board or plywood that you that you mentioned or referenced. All right, interesting. So this grant program is going to what types of organizations? What are you looking to develop or promote here through these grants? Yeah, we're really trying to support markets for wood products, new markets, innovative markets, getting wood in places that it hasn't been before. So the kinds of uh, folks that are available, interested and available uh, to apply are for-profits, not-for-profits, states, tribes. It's really a wide um, uh, set of applications that can be received for this uh, for these two programs. There's the Wood Innovations uh, Program, and then the second one is the Community Wood uh, Facilities Grant Program. Yeah, what is a community wood facility? Sounds like a fancy word for forest. <laughs> well, it's so our community wood energy, it, it focuses on our community wood facilities program really has two emphasis. One is these are shovel-ready projects that can support expansion or new facilities. It really has a primary emphasis on small-scale community wood energy. So we're talking about small campus, maybe a school campus, that might be heated using wood for heat, which is a very thermal use or very efficient use uh, for wood. And then we also have the ability to invest in facilities, innovative wood products facilities. That might be things like cross-laminated timber, this, this large thick panel that can be used to construct taller buildings or other innovative wood products like biochar or other new cellulose-based nanomaterials that might be coming to the marketplace. So that's what the Community Wood Program is really all about, is to support renewable wood energy facilities that are going to produce heat at a district or small scale, and then also 
uh, innovative wood products, processing uh, facilities and equipment. And just a question on that wood for heating. Having spent some time in New England many years ago, everybody had a wood stove. It was kind of a fad that they came back into existence sometime around the late 1960s, early 1970s. But they do produce smoke, and it's kind of an old-fashioned way in this age of solar this and battery that. So what are the issues with wood as a heating fuel these days? So what I would say is that our renewable wood energy sector, these aren't your grandfather's old wood stoves. These are clean, efficient, safe-burning technologies that really are available for installation for homes, but also for larger scale applications. And that's where it really is an important market outlet for for wood products that don't have another home. So these are clean, efficient, and highly regulated products that we're supporting. Sounds like that particular application could boost maybe steam production again, say in heating or that type of thing. It does create, you know, there's different ways to create heat, and and steam is certainly one of those options. We're speaking with Brian Brashaw. He's Assistant Director for Wood Innovations at the U.S. Forest Service. And so the grantees will produce what? Ideas? I mean, what what do we get out of these grants to these various organizations? So our our two grant programs really support a wide range of applications that that help us bring wood products to markets. So in our wood innovation grants, those are typically grants that are about $300,000. And those really support the establishment of wood energy teams within states, innovative wood products teams, kind of a cross sector that can focus on the market development within a state. But we're also providing funding to support introduction of new engineered wood products like mass timber or cross laminated timber. Think of that as two-by construction lumber that's flat laminated into thick panels. We'll provide and support engineering or feasibility analysis for tall buildings. So, for instance, one of the projects that we supported with the Wood Innovation Grant was the University of Idaho's new mass timber basketball arena. Just an incredible showcase for the value of wood products uh, in in a university setting. The tallest timber building in the world is 25 stories. That was my next uh, question. <laughs> 19 stories is, uh, is, is, it's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's known as the Ascent Building. And we supported that early stage front end design, engineering, and feasibility, which leads to, in that case, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of investments as projects go forward. There's just a whole range of projects from biochar uh, market development or standard development or equipment purchases that are eligible under these uh, under the Wood Innovation Grants Program. And what about fire performance in tall buildings? Because I imagine if that takes hold, that's the first question people will have. It, it certainly is. And, and a large cross-section or large members, so this might be large columns or beams that are horizontal, and then you've got your floor systems, which also becomes the ceiling of the floor above. You know, the, these large cross-section members perform very, very well. Wood, as it burns, creates char. And as wood chars, it really slows down the, the combustion. So wood burns predictably. The Forest Service and our national laboratory, which is the Forest Products Laboratory in Madison, Wisconsin, has really been a scientific backbone working with many, many partners to look at building codes, to look at fire codes, to engage in these kinds of things. And I can tell you that the tall building in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Fire Department was one of the first 
partners that was engaged in helping to assess and understand how these new building materials uh, fit into uh, in the in the marketplace and into safety and into codes. Well, the uh, fire that burned the White House in 1812 charred some of the main beams, yet they lasted in place until about 19, what was it, about 45, when they had to clear out and finally rebuild the place. So we do have that history there. And this is a really off-the-wall question. Any interest from what used to be known as Detroit collectively, will you ever see maybe wooden cars again, some woody-sided wagons? (laughs) You know, Henry Ford was a sawmiller way back in the day. And was was really you know the wood products were were there. There has been over time wood fiber composites that have been utilized in vehicles, and I do think that those kinds of unique innovative applications are still coming. I think there's still quite a bit of work in some of the sectors in the automotive industry to uh, to incorporate wood because it is such a strong lightweight material that offers a lot of benefits. And finally, the deadline for people wanting grants. Yeah, so our application deadline, uh, we have $24 million available for the Wood Innovation Grant Program. We have $17 million available for the Community Wood, uh, which is really the Facilities Grant Program. Both of those applications close on March 23rd of, of next month. All right, and we'll add that link to our posting of this interview. Brian Brashaw is Assistant Director for Wood Innovations at the U.S. Forest Service. I think you've got one of the great jobs, by the way, in the federal government. I love it. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. 
And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where 
you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.